Hi there, and thanks for listening to Inside the Crime. You'll soon hear from some of those closest to the case. And to help remind you of who they are, we've built an interactive family tree on our website where you can learn more about the key figures in this story. You'll also find an easy-to-follow interactive map of Porterstown Lane as it appeared in 1971, with all the key locations clearly marked out with handy explainers. You'll find it all at newstalk.com forward slash deeper inside the crime. Now, back to the podcast. In the last episode of Inside the Crime, we heard how the search for Una Linsky intensified in the days after she went missing. Danny Place, there was a bridge along the railway track. I think we went into uh, maybe one or two different woods there just to search. We also met Martin Conmey, who told us he and one of his best friends, Marty Kerrigan, made false confessions after some heavy-handed Garth interrogations. The fact that you're innocent and you know you didn't do it, well then, Jesus, tell them to what the hell get out of that place. I couldn't take any more. In this episode, we'll turn our attention to what happened after Martian and Marty made those false confessions. News of what they said soon crossed every doorstep on Porterstown Lane, setting in train a sequence of events that would change their lives forever. He was very afraid to go anywhere or anything. He was afraid. The fingers of suspicion may have been aimed in the wrong direction, but those who found themselves being pointed at were right to feel scared. And an act of misplaced vengeance would soon bring more tragedy to the lane. I remember being at the window, looking out and praying, please, please God, don't let anything happen to him. As we learned in the last episode, Martian Conmey lied to the murder squad when he told them he met Una on the night she disappeared. The truth is, he wasn't even on the lane when she went missing but he would have said anything to get out of Trim Garda station. Marty Kerrigan also made a false confession by telling them he and Dick Donnelly dumped Una's body. Despite also taking a beating in the Garda station that night, Dick stuck to his guns and refused to stray from his original statement. He insisted he'd nothing to do with it. The guards were very close to Una's family, maybe too close, and it didn't take long for word to get back to the Linskys about what the boys had said. Una's cousin, Porik Gohan, didn't believe they had anything to do with it, but his faith in their innocence wasn't shared by the whole family. You had most of the investigation going on in Linsky's house. That's where the detectives and the guards were. And, uh, I mean, in their heads, they were convinced that uh, the lads uh, had done it. Dick, Marty uh, and Martin, they were responsible for Luna's disappearance. And uh, and your, your parents, they didn't believe it? Like, they believed... <laughs> My sister and myself, OK, we, we made our statements. We, we told the guards what we had seen. Um, and... My father, like, he believed us. Um, my, my father made it clear to us that um, the lads were innocent. Like, we were biking over to Linsky's house. And, I mean, what I remember, there was a lot of anger there. There was a lot of anger in the house. Um, when you went into the pub, there was certain things said to you, how the lads were, were, were involved. Why were they, you know, how they were involved. And... and uh, it didn't make any difference to some people. What you, Again, what you said, the lads were guilty. And that was it. And that was more because of um, the police said so and the detective said so. 
With the Linskys so close to the investigation team, it came as no surprise to Martin when word got out about what he said in Trimgar the station. The police, I think, were using their house as a headquarters up there. The Linskys? Oh, yeah, there's no question about it, yeah. That's unusual in itself, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, I think it? they were told straight away they're after, the boys are after admitting to it, you know. And were there any um, repercussions then towards you and the lads on the street? Well, there would be when they'd be going up and down, they'd attracted there, the vegetables used to be, and used to be going up and down, used to be crushing and roaring in. Sure, there were shots fired over houses and everything. I don't know, I don't know how many poor old parents went through it, you know. As Martin mentioned there, the lane he grew up on soon became a hostile environment. In a newspaper interview, five weeks after Una went missing, her father Patrick said he believed some people were holding back evidence. To those who were convinced that Martin and the boys had something to do with Una's disappearance, they became the source of all their pain and suffering. And they let them know how they felt in no uncertain terms, as Martin's younger sister Mary now recalls. The morning after they came out from Trem and they came home from Trem that night, the next morning I was going to school, getting up, going to school, and I was kind of first up, I think. Um, My parents were still in bed. I was getting, I don't know, was it an eight o'clock bus or half eight? But when I went out to the road, there was a big slogan painted on the road with white paint. And it said? Murderer. Economy. It was big lettering, like it took up certainly half the road, if not, I would say two thirds of it. And there was a gallows painted on a, you know, a kind of stick man, like hanging like from hangman. the gallows. Yeah, hangman, yeah. And I remember looking at it and running back in to tell my parents. Did you ever find out who did it? No, I presumed it was... You had your suspicions. suspicions. And the following following day, I think, a postcard came. Um, we would have known the postman very well, Jack Brown, Ratholt. And he apologised to my mother or father, having to deliver this, but he had to deliver it. And because it was a postcard, you, he could read what was on it. And it was the same thing the gallows thing again and Kerrigan's got one and Donnelly's got one as well As Mary says her family wasn't the only one targeted so too were the Kerrigan's and the Donnelly's Like Martin Marty had also made a false confession and despite Dick maintaining his innocence throughout he too faced a nasty reception after he got home Not for one second could any of them have imagined the nightmare that was about to unfold? Whatever about the guards, they figured their neighbours would believe them. But here, Marty's sister Katie says that's not how things panned out. We were targeted, yes. They came every night, the Linsky lads and John Gohan, came every night to our house for a couple of hours, flying up and down the road, jamming on and shouting and roaring. They fired shots over our house. We were terrified, absolutely terrified. Yeah. Was there was there an incident of some graffiti on the street as well? Yes, they wrote out, they wrote outside um, with a narrow facing into our house, uh, Kerrigan murder. So done the same at Dick's house and the same at Martin Connemys. 
despite everything, those wrongly blamed for what happened to Una still held out hope that the truth would set them free. But with Una having seemingly vanished without a trace, that hope was slowly starting to fade away. And then, almost two months after she went missing, the murder squad got word of a potential breakthrough. A body has been found at Glen Dew, close to Glen Cullen in the Dublin mountains. Gardaí from Rathfarnham arrived on the scene after receiving a call from a member of the public just before noon. The area has since been cordoned off and a search has now been carried out in the vicinity of where the body was found. The office of the state pathologist has also been notified of the discovery. On Friday, the 10th of December, 1971, a farmer called James Williams was cleaning a drain on the side of a road near the pine forest on Glendue Mountain. Over the bank, maybe seven or eight yards from the road, his attention was drawn to something that shouldn't have been there. It was a metal fire grate resting on top of a piece of black felt in the middle of a clump of bog flowers. That was odd, he thought. James lived nearby and had spotted the fire grate in the area before, but it had been moved since he saw it last. With his curiosity now piqued, he grabbed his shovel and removed some gorse bushes to see what lurked beneath the black felt under the grate. To his horror, he realised it was a human skull. Later, when the black felt was carefully peeled back, a badly decomposed body was found lying on its back in what appeared to be a hastily dug shallow grave. It was fully clothed in coat, cardigan, dress, slip, pants, tights and bra. Her shoes and handbag were nowhere to be found. On the wrist of the left arm was a gold heart-shaped watch. On the ring finger of the right hand a signet ring with a red stone. It was Una. We were all devastated. You know, I mean, in my mind, I always thought that maybe there was a chance that she was alive, that she was somewhere and she'd come back. Um, It was just hard to take. You know, that a young girl, our our next door neighbour, our cousin, first cousin, was found like that. You know, and it was devastating. It was, it, it, it was hard to take. Before Una's remains were released to her family, the then state pathologist, Professor Morris Hickey, carried out a post-mortem. It was hoped he'd be able to figure out how she died and perhaps unearth something that would lead detectives to her killer's door. But despite a thorough forensic examination, he didn't find anything of significance and was unable to establish a cause of death. If she'd been killed in a car accident and perhaps dumped in the mountains by a panic-stricken driver, you'd expect to find some broken bones. But all of Una's were intact, including her hyoid bone, a small U-shaped bone found in the front of the neck. If that had been damaged, it could have led Professor Hickey to conclude that she had been strangled to death, but there was nothing to suggest that that was the case. With the autopsy now complete, Una's remains were prepared for a proper burial. There was a dilemma when it came to her funeral with my parents. Like this was their neighbour's daughter. 
they wanted, in their heart, they wanted to go to the funeral. But I think they also knew that something could happen. It, you know, they didn't want anything to happen that would upset the Lenskis at the funeral. And Did they, they feel they wouldn't be welcome? Yeah, they felt the they felt they were definitely torn between should we go and if we go will it cause some problems so they made the decision not to go and um she her body i think was it was some um, funeral home in dublin and then she was brought to the church one evening and the cortege came up the lane. And that is something that I have a very clear memory of. Um, I think my parents, they might have been, you know, looking out the window because we had a window and our kitchen faced the front, faced the road. So when we knew the cortege is is passing, it's there now. I went outside and I stood, it was one of the sheds, I stood at the wall and watched the whole thing. And that is a memory like that. It was all of the red taillights of the cars, watching them. And knowing that all the people in there were probably, in those cars, were probably talking about us, about our house, as they passed our house. And how awful it was that these people thought that my brother and us had something to do with Una's murder. And I watched the cortege as it went around and turned at the bend, and then it stopped over at near the ESB pylon. The whole thing stood still there. I can even remember the weather that night. I remember it was it was windy, and just leaning against the wall and had my cardigan or whatever just pulled around me to keep warm, and just just the sadness, the sadness of it all. Hundreds of mourners gathered at the Church of the Holy Trinity in Ratoth for Una's funeral mass. Many of them had to stand outside because the church was full. Afterwards, her six brothers carried her coffin to the local cemetery, with her beloved boyfriend Paddy Kelly lending a hand along the way. At the cemetery, her parents and eleven siblings lined the graveside to pay their final respects. She was just 19 years old, taken just a stone's throw from home. It was too much to bear. By now, the investigation into Una's disappearance was upgraded to a murder investigation. At her funeral, plainclothes detectives mingled with mourners, journalists too. Like everyone else, Martin, Dick and Marty had hoped Una would return home alive and well. When she didn't, they hoped the discovery of her body would reveal something that would clear their names. It didn't. In fact, it only added fuel to the fire, 
as Marty's sisters, Katie and Anne, now recall. The day the girl was found, I had seen it on the paper. I was working in Ballymun at the time. And I came home and told him, I said, her body is found. And I said, oh, thank God, at least now that, that's it. It's sorted. It's over. You know, that, that, that was it. It actually got worse from there on in. We begged him to go over to England because once word got out that they had been taken in for questioning, we were being harassed every night they were down at the house. We were all nervous because we were all young and um, had only lost our mother a short time previous. But um, he was he was nervous. He was afraid. Despite having done no wrong, Marty was right to feel nervous and afraid. The day after Una's body was found, his older sister Eileen drove him into a toth. She parked outside Ryan's pub, leaving Marty in the car while she went inside. Upon realising that Marty was outside, she claimed Una's brother, James Linsky, ran out of the pub to try and drag Marty out of the car. She said she somehow managed to pull him away and that Marty then shuffled into the driver's seat and sped off. A lucky escape. Just over a week later, Marty went for a few pints of Guinness in Mars pub in Ratoth. It was the Sunday before Christmas Day, 1971. At the same time, Una's brothers, James and Sean Linsky, and their cousin, John Gohan, were drinking in the county club in Dunshocklin, just a few miles away. When the bell for last orders rang out in Mars, Marty decided to have one for the road. He left the pub just after 10 o'clock. John Harty, a local Garda, noticed him on the street with his friends. He also noticed Paddy Kelly's car nearby with three others in it. Marty and his friends had decided to go to a dance, so Garda Harty offered them a lift and they set off in his car. Porrick Gohan was also out that night and he too was making his way to the dance with his brother Danny. It's a night he'll never forget. We were heading to um, Kilmoon to a dance that was down on the, the Ashburton Slane Road. And um, there was an, just a, a minor accident, a, a minor motorbike accident with uh, a couple of local lads. And that happened around, uh, it would have been around the crossroad there at uh, at the graveyard in Rathod. The, the old barracks crossroad is, the, is that? That's exactly it, yeah. And uh, John being a guard, um, as far as I know, just was trying to sort things out at the, uh, at the accident. We're very close to that um, crossroad there. When, I don't know whose car it was, was it Paddy Kelly's car? But this car pulled up. There was probably about 10 of them and 10, 11 in total. And that's when I think Danny, ran, John Hardy had gone into the house um, to uh, make a phone call. And when they started, I suppose you could call it a row, as far as I know, Danny went into the house uh, because I don't know, did we realise at the time that Marty was being taken? But Danny must have realised that. And he he ran into the house um, to get John Harty to come out. I don't know what he said to John, but it was probably just saying, John, look, they're trying to take Marty here. Um, we did our best, unfortunately.
After Gar the Harshi went into the house near the scene of the motorbike accident, two cars pulled up. Paddy Kelly's Austin A40 and John Gohan's Green Mini. Again, Paddy Kelly was Una's boyfriend. John Gohan was her cousin. He was a brother of Anne Gohan, who got the bus home with Una on that fateful night. As Porrick said a moment ago, he remembers about 10 or 11 lads getting out of the cars. He and his pals were outnumbered. Marty didn't stand a chance. It was terrible that we couldn't stop it, you know. You know, there was, there was just too many. Iron, iron bars involved and we had nothing. You know, I often thought of it. If I only had a hurry stick or something to... You know, when you think back, you know, he was only a child. Pull a child into a car like that. Like he left, his shoes were on the ground there. You know, Danny, Danny found his shoes. To this day, it's not clear how the boys knew where to find Marty that night. But when they arrived on the scene, all hell broke loose. John Gohan stayed in his car while the others spilled out onto the street. James Linsky made a beeline for Marty, knocking him straight to the ground. The sound of Marty's head cracking off the tarmac still haunts Porrick, who rushed to help him, trying his best to pull his cousin off him. While he grappled with James, Sean Linsky grabbed Marty by his long hair and dragged him along the ground to John Gohan's mini. He then bundled him headfirst into the back. Sean ran alongside the slowly moving car before pushing Marty the rest of the way in and jumping in. James Linsky also jumped in and they sped off with Marty lying on the floor. With the mini now out of sight, it didn't take long for word of Marty's abduction to reach the Kerrigan household, as Anne now recalls. I heard it on Sunday night about half ten, eleven o'clock. I was out in Dunchockland socialising and when I came home, Katie came out of the house and she said, they've taken Marty. I thought she meant the guards, that they had taken him in to trim. And she says, the Linskys have taken him. I said, how do you know? And my father had been, had been walking up the road from the local pub and somebody pulled up and gave him Marty's shoe where he lost his shoe when he was being dragged into the car. So that's how we knew that he was gone. So we drove up to John Gohan's house and we waited there. By now, John Gohan's green mini was scrambling up the Dublin mountains towards the shallow grave where Una's body was found just 10 days beforehand. The Linsky brothers had a hold of Marty in the back as they grilled him about what happened to their sister. And just like he did at Trimgar the station, Marty insisted he'd nothing to do with it. Clearly unhappy with his answers, his head was bashed off a bar under the front passenger seat. Sean Linsky told him he had a shotgun, prompting John Gahan to plead with them not to kill him in his car. Instead, he suggested they push him off a cliff. No doubt fearing for his life, Marty once again lied about what happened to Una. Without going into any detail whatsoever, he blamed Martin and Dick. At some point, John Gohan had to stop for petrol, and as soon as he did, 
Marshy started calling for help at the top of his voice. Sean Linsky put his hand over his mouth to silence him. Marty stopped shouting. In fact, he became very quiet after that and didn't open his mouth again. When they reached the spot where Una's remains were found, the Linsky brothers opened the passenger door and shoved him out onto the grass. They then drove back to John Gotten's house where an angry crowd awaited them. After a while, I can't remember how long after, but we were sitting there in the car waiting for them to come back and the mini came flying back in the gate and they jumped out and ran for the house. John Gohan and the but two Linskys. John Gohan, yeah. But there was no sign of Marty. And the guards told us to go home. And that, the words he said, we'll have Marty home as soon as you've gone home. So we did that. It was after 1am when the Green Mini returned without Marty. The Kerrigans, having gone home to await news, faced an anxious wait. The tick-tock of the kitchen clock seemed to get slower and slower with every passing minute. Over at the Conmees, Mary was also praying for Marty's safe return. Before I went to bed, I knew Marty had been taken. And I remember being in my bedroom and again, there was windows facing the front out to the road. And I remember being at the window, looking out and praying. I, I always remember that. It was like, please, please, God, don't let anything happen to him. Pleading. Um, cars, I know, were going up and down the road, probably from um, Gohan's. Because at that time, we could kind of see Gohan's house. The trees and hedges weren't like they are now. But at some stage I must have, like, went to bed and I don't know whether I slept or not, but I know I was awake when I had a radio. RT opened at half seven. And coming up to half seven, there would be this music kind of thing that would go on for a while. And then you'd have the bleeps just before... And it was, they opened with the news. And the first, it was the first thing on the news. It said the body of a young man has been found in the Dublin mountains. That's, that's how I found out. The discovery was made in the early hours of this morning after Gardaí from Dundrum were sent to a location in Tibradden Wood, Glen Cullen. The body was found quite close to where the remains of Una Linsky, a 19-year-old girl from Porterstown Lane in County Meath, were discovered earlier this month. We waited and waited. And about five o'clock in the morning, a guard, two guards came to the door and said, how soon would you be able to identify Marty's body? And Eileen spoke to them and she said, well, we're, we will have to contact my brother and sister in England. Can you wait until he comes home? And my brother will do it. And they said no. So she took, she got her friend the next day and the two of them went and identified him. 
Marty's body was found lying on a small patch of grass near where Una's body had been dumped. His trousers were ripped at the seams and his shirt was torn open. He was covered in bruises and the skin had been torn from his nose but the most gruesome injury had been inflicted after he died. Having examined a three-inch jagged cut, the pathologist concluded that someone had tried to castrate him. Not long after Marty's body was discovered, Martin Conmey reported for duty on a building site in Dublin. He hadn't heard that his friend was dead, but it wasn't long before he found out in the most shocking and cruelest of ways. Yeah, I remember I was working in a site in Clondark and Robert Hood Industrial Estate was the place in there. It was actually on a Monday. These guards arrived in and Gildee was one of them in the car. There was about three or four of them in it. And uh, the first thing he said to me, did you hear your friend? I didn't know at this stage, Kerrigan is, is dead. And I said, no. Well, you're going to be, you'll be next to be up there. That's what they said to me, more or less, up there where he was put. Up in the mountains? Yeah, you'll be next. So we'll knock it out with you today, he says, bringing this rat farnum. But I was different in there. I was stronger. I was different completely. And I said, to wrap me in anyone was, oh, it was late at night when I got out. I was in early in the morning, about half nine or something. I was there till about, could be 10 o'clock, maybe that night. Oh, they were going on and on and, and um, just kept saying, come on, tell us now. And I said, I told you the truth in trim and you wouldn't believe me. And I said, you can bet that S I would be today if you want. I was different. I said, I'm not, I said, I never seen that girl. And next thing I got a slap across the back, across the face from, I think it was Gildee. And did you believe them that Marty was dead? I, I, I don't know, I suppose I couldn't, I couldn't let myself believe that. I just couldn't believe it, that Marty's life was taken, you know. I couldn't believe it. And then they showed me a photograph in, 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 in Radfarnham. Of, of, it was about that size of a photograph of Marty. Quite a large it, photograph. A large photograph with a black jacket and a, and a short and a tore and, and blood on them here. They showed me that. And then the, I think they turned, the, I think I should turn on the radio at one o'clock. For the news. How are you convinced, he says. You'd be next to be up there. And the photograph of Marty lying in the ditch, I could actually see him clear, you know. Taken at the site where he was found? Where he was lying in the ditch, yeah. It's like, it was like a bad dream. You're, you're trying to wake up from it, but no, it was... Oh. Sadly, what happened to Marty wasn't a bad dream. The nightmare on Portestown Lane had started two months earlier when Una Linsky stepped off that bus. And with Marty now dead there was no end in sight. Una was buried five days before Marty was killed and now it was the Kerrigan's turn to bury a loved one. Both of them just 19 years of age, both taken far too soon. Here, Mary Conmey shares her memories of Marty's wake. I will never, ever forget the scene that I saw. It was... Just unimaginable grief. Everybody was crying, but in particular, I saw Katie. She was, there was two or three steps up to where the coffin was. It was just a rectangular room. The coffin was just in the middle of it on a stand. 
There was nobody really around the coffin. It was like as if everybody was back from it. And Katie was sitting on one of the steps and she had been crying so hard that she was gone into, I don't know what you call it, convulsions. She was just heaving like this. And in National School, Katie was my best friend. But I never saw such grief. And Eileen was sitting beside her trying to comfort her. And I just, and my heart went out to her. But I remember standing looking at the, at Marty in the coffin and noticing the bruises on his lip. And But what really caught my attention, I'd only seen maybe my grandparents, my grandfather. I hadn't seen many people who were dead, but they were old. And they always liked the hands um, clasped and a rosary beads was the usual thing. And it was the hands, Marty's hands were almost covered with the lining of the, the um, coffin lining. And that really caught my attention. I kept thinking, why, why are they covering his hands? Why are his hands covered? That you couldn't see his fingers. And, um, but I kept looking at it and I was like, you're dead because people hated you. You're not, you're not just dead because you're old or it was an accident. Somebody has taken your life because they hated you, because they thought you did something that you didn't do. So what about those who killed Marty? Well, the guards were waiting for John Gotton when he returned home that night with his cousins James and Sean Linsky. He lied at first, telling them they picked Marty up at the graveyard and left him on Ferry House Road, where he got into a grey car which then drove off. He changed his story later and described how Marty was bundled into the back of his car and how the Linsky brothers were questioning him about Una's death. He said he remembered asking if Marty was dead when they pushed him out of the car, to which James replied, He is not. His heart is beating. He's up to his old tricks. James admitted losing his patience when he saw Marty at the crossroads, but told the guards he thought he was putting it on when he went quiet in the car. At the end of his statement, he said, Now that I've heard that Marty Kerrigan is dead, I want to say that I don't know how he could have died. It must be very easy to kill a person. His brother Sean Linsky admitted shaking Marty's head up and down nine or ten times as he questioned him about Una's murder. After putting his hand over his mouth at the petrol station, he said Marty went quiet for the rest of the journey but he too thought he was play-acting. On Wednesday, the 15th of March, 1972, all three stood trial for Marty's murder. Porrick Gohan was called to give evidence against his cousins. There's an awful lot of things I can't remember about the trial. I think I just wanted to forget about it. Um, That was the only day that I went to that trial. I didn't know Porrick was given evidence, but I went into it and I was up in the gallery, the public gallery. And I don't know whether he diverged a little or something, but I remember him saying, they called, they called my father a murderer. I think he was like he is now, he was, he was upset. The case against John Gohan and the Linsky brothers was that they'd murdered Marty as a revenge killing for what they believed to be his role in Una's death. They denied that 
claiming they only wanted information and believed he was still alive when they left him up the mountains. When John Gohan was told Marty was dead, he said, Jesus Christ Almighty, we'll have to face it. James Linsky looked shocked when he found out, but didn't say anything at all. Sean Linsky said he didn't care if he was strung up in the morning. At trial, the jury heard a double barrel shotgun was found in John Gohan's mini. They also heard Sean Linsky had two knives on him that night, a bread knife and a pen knife. When he took the stand, he claimed he was using the bread knife to cut an apple tart and only brought it with him that night in case he needed to defend himself. He accepted it was a dangerous weapon, but insisted he never used it. The jury was told there was no blood found on it, while the penknife wasn't tested. According to the state pathologist, Marty Kerrigan died from suffocation. Something or someone had interfered with his breathing. When asked, the pathologist agreed that the pressure of a person's hand being applied over his mouth and nose could have killed him. The defence suggested that Marty was drunk when they rolled him into the ditch and that perhaps he had fallen down and caused his own death. The prosecution suggested Sean Linsky's possession of a knife proved his intention to kill or cause serious harm. In the end, it was left for the jury to decide. They were sent out to begin their deliberations just before half past two on the afternoon of Wednesday the 29th of March 1972. They returned with their verdict just after 1am the next morning. Having poured over the evidence for ten and a half hours, they found the three men not guilty of Marty's murder, but guilty of his manslaughter. The packed public gallery fell silent. To this day, we don't understand how it ended up being manslaughter. There was something not right somewhere along the way because anybody that leaves their house with two knives and a gun, that's not that's not on. Just they had reasons. They had their sights set on what they did do. Things were never the same after that. The community of Porterstown Lane was forever changed after Marty was killed. A young woman had been abducted and dumped up the Dublin mountains and in a cruel act of misplaced vengeance, a young man soon suffered the same fate. For their roles in killing Marty, Sean Linsky and John Gohan were jailed for three years. James Linsky got two years' detention in St. Pat's. Those closest to Marty felt they got off lightly and they'd never come to terms with the senselessness of his death. How could he give them information about something he knew nothing about? He just couldn't give them the information that they wanted because he didn't know. In the next episode of Inside the Crime, we'll go inside the courtroom once more. With Marty's killers now behind bars, it wasn't long before Martin Conmey and Dick Donnelly found themselves in the dock. They had done no wrong, but they were not believed. They were charged and would soon face a jury for the murder of Una Linsky. Guards appeared from everywhere. Like, they must have come across the fields and everything. He kind of said, they have to come, Martin has to come. And so they went. 
their fate now lay in the hands of Lady Justice. Surely the truth would finally come out. You're kind of living on the hope that God wouldn't allow someone to be convicted of something they didn't do. Subscribe to Inside the Crime on the News Talk app, powered by Go Loud or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more exclusive content, visit newstalk.com forward slash deeper inside the crime for an interactive map, information about the families, including detailed family trees, images and explainers. For this episode, we've posted some articles about the Ford Zephyr and Zodiac, as well as a background to the so-called heavy gang within Angarda Shiokana. We're really confident that someone out there knows something or saw something that could help advance Unalinsky's murder investigation. If you are that person, please contact the Garda Confidential line on 1800 treble one. You can also email us at insidethecrime at newstalk.com. It's never too late. Inside the Crime was hosted by me, Frank Graney, produced by Ashling Moore, with sound mixing by Lachlan Hart. New episodes out every Tuesday.